Uh, finally, um, I want to let you know that as we um, come to our text this morning, we have preached all the way through the book of James, but we're going, not going to cover the last two verses this morning. I'm going to tell you why, because as you look at this last passage of James, the last two verses really stand on their own, and I, want, I wish we had more time to finish them, um, but I want to encourage you to read. We're going to read them this morning, but, but um, as you uh, continue in your own personal Bible study, I would encourage you this week to look at those last two weeks, essentially what James does, uh, the last two verses, Essentially, what James does is reminds us that as the church, as Christians persevere in their faith through trials, they should be helping others to do the same. When we do that, we surround those around us, we literally rescue them uh, from death. And so that's where James finishes the book. But I just want to let you know up front, we're not going to be covering those last two verses. 21 years ago, my wife Erica and I welcomed our third child into this world. Isaac was born on October 3rd, 2001, and over the next two weeks, Erica and I grew to begin to worry that something was wrong with our baby boy. He slept constantly. He didn't wake to eat like his older brother and sister had done. He didn't even stir when his diaper was changed. We took him to a, his pediatrician to express our concern but the doctor assured us that there was no reason for alarm. Some babies, I remember him saying, sleep a lot, and some babies don't. Just go home, continue to monitor his weight and the amount of time that he spends nursing, and I'll see you again soon. Well, that Friday night after that visit, we went to bed as we had every other night, and at around 3 o'clock in the morning, on Saturday, October 20th, 2001, Erica awoke to discover that Isaac wasn't breathing. She called 911 while I performed CPR. And while what it felt like hours, within minutes, we were in the emergency room awaiting news. As we sat side by side with fear literally coursing through our veins, Erica said to me, we need to pray. God will save him. And we did. We joined hands, and I pled with God for everything to be okay. For him to take care of this precious life that he only entrusted to us some 17 days before. And minutes later, we were escorted to a small chapel down the hall from the emergency room, and a team of doctors came in, and they gave us the news that it was too late, that they were unable to revive him. In those moments, I remember my world feeling as if it had just come crashing down around me. And days later, we stood in a cemetery right next to the elementary school where I had attended kindergarten, around a tiny grave. And we watched as they lowered my son's tiny white casket into the earth. For the weeks and the months that came, we lived through a pain that was so intense that I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And while the horrific heartache began to become at least bearable after several months, I was left with a struggle that was not apparent to those who looked on from the outside. You see, I was a young pastor in my early 20s, and every time I visited a hospital room or sat down with a family in their home, they would ask me to pray. They would ask me to, to pray for them, for their sick, for their family that was experiencing trouble. And I found myself internally 
wondering whether prayer really worked. How could a pastor wonder whether prayer was effective, whether it really worked? But I struggled, I'll be honest with you, to believe that God really answers prayers, or at least that he answered my prayers. I wonder if you've ever been there. You've cried out to God in a time of desperation for rescue, but the rescue never came. You prayed for healing, but your loved one died anyway. You pled to God for reconciliation with your spouse, and now you're divorced. You know what I'm talking about. In fact, maybe you're there now. You wonder whether prayer really matters. Don't get me wrong, you pay lip service to it. If you've been around the church for a while, you know that we are a praying people. You know that prayer is an important part of the Christian life. Or maybe you're new to the church and you've prayed, but you're not really sure that God answers your prayers. Truth be told, if we could peel back the layers of our hearts this morning in this place and expose the innermost thoughts of our minds, what those around us might find is doubt. Many of you wonder whether God is really listening. And more specifically, you wonder whether he's listening to you. As we draw our series in the book of James to a conclusion this morning, we come to one of the most compelling texts in all of Scripture on the topic of prayer, culminating a letter written to Christians dispersed and facing persecution of financial, judicial, political, and sometimes even physical natures. James implores his readers to persevere in their faith through suffering and in their perseverance to never Stop praying. Commentator R.V. Tasker says this in his reflections on this passage. The habit of prayer should be, and indeed is, one of the most obvious features which differentiates a Christian from other people. See, Christians are to be people of prayer. And in our text today, James fleshes out what that looks like. And he offers us a framework for the life of prayer. He tells us when to pray, how to pray, and why we should pray. Let's open our Bibles then, and we're going to read this passage together. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I'll be reading to you from the English Standard Version of the Bible. James concludes this letter. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Would you join me as we approach the throne of God in prayer? Almighty God, as we come to a conclusion in this book of James, and we look at this important part of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, particularly when we pray, how we pray, and why we pray, Lord, would your Holy Spirit work in this place right now. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of those who are here, perhaps those who are hurt, those who are struggling right now, and those who are wondering whether prayer works. Lord, move powerfully in this place today and allow us to leave here with a newfound confidence and commitment to a life of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together in your sight be pleasing, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we begin reading this text this morning together, we immediately identify three occasions we should pray. James reveals these occasions through a poetic construction of sentences. He asks three questions up front. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? And is anyone sick? And with general verbs and indefinite pronouns, James keeps the focus of his conversation very broad and inclusive. But the answer to all these questions is anything but broad and generic. The course of action for the full range of life situations, says James, the guidance for people of faith in every situation that is imaginable is the same. Let them pray. Like Paul in Ephesians 6.18, who exhorts us to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Or again in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. James exhorts believers to pray in whatever situations they find themselves. Look at the situations, the occasions when Christians should pray. First, we are to pray in times of trouble. The Greek word for trouble here is the word for suffering, but it's not the kind of suffering that you go through when you have a physical ailment, a disease, or something that happens to your body. Rather, this is a more general suffering. Think of the circumstances or the situations that cause you stress in life. This is the suffering that we endure here on this earth internally as a result of the broken world in which we live. It's the tears that we shed over the choices of our children, or the heartache we experience as we watch a loved one face cancer. It's the turmoil caused by financial stress incurred because of the loss of a job. Young people, it's the emotional pain you feel when you are bullied or ridiculed at school. You fill in the blank. We all face trouble, turmoil, and suffering of many kinds, and when we do, we're tempted to believe that God is far off. We're tempted to strike out or in anger or to complain or, or perhaps even to just bear up in resignation under the hardships knowing that it will eventually pass. But James says, O oh church, O oh Christian, the proper response to trouble, the proper response to suffering is to engage in prayer. And why? 
Because as the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 50, verse 15, when we call upon God in the day of our trouble, he will deliver us. And in Psalm 91, 15, that when we call to God, he will answer us and be with us in time of trouble. So this morning, O oh friend, when you're tempted to believe that God is uncaring, unpresent, unknowing, or unreachable, and you're tempted to pray less, the biblical instruction is the opposite. Pray more. Trouble is the very time to pray. Second, we are also to pray in times of happiness. James continues, is anyone among you cheerful? Now, James doesn't point to a specific single cause for this happiness. Rather, he uses a generic word. It's a Greek word that points to a state of emotions rather than to outward circumstances. It's the sense that things are at peace in your soul, that things are well in your life. If you're anything like me, these are the most difficult times to practice the habit of regular prayer. For me, a reminder to turn to God in times of cheer is needed much more than in times of need. Because when I know I have a need, it's more natural for me to turn to God than when all seems well. I tend to become complacent and to pray less when I can't sense my need. And once again, the biblical instruction is the opposite of what comes to us naturally. When we think we need to pray the least, we need to pray more. Specifically, James says, sing songs of praise. Sing songs of praise when you're cheerful. The word here is the word for solo, which, from which we get our word psalm. It means to play a stringed instrument or to sing a hymn by plucking an instrument. In the early church, that word came to signify the making of music in any fashion, either a cappella or with instruments, and it was used to refer to the singing of praises and psalms to God. James says you shouldn't only pray when you're in times of trouble, but your thoughts, your attitudes, your heart ought to be oriented toward God when things are good when they're cheerful, when all is as it should be, when your marriage is good and your kids are well and your job is fulfilling, still then ought your heart to be tuned to the Lord. In those times, James says, we must celebrate with songs of praise and adoration. For those songs are forms of prayer themselves as we address God and we place ourselves in a position of listening to God. Church, that means that what we do here on Sunday mornings before the message and after the message, what the praise team leads us in every Sunday is important because they are a form of communication with God. They are an offering of praise and adoration to God. So don't think of the music as something you need to hurry and get through in order to get to the message. It's important. It's a form of prayer. But beyond the four to five songs we sing together, if we take this exhortation seriously, it also means we ought to be filling our day-to-day -day lives with music that offers praise to God. If you don't already do so, may I challenge you to add praise and worship to your daily life. Play some songs in the background around the house or in your vehicle or while you're driving or while you're at work or at wherever you are, for in so doing, we provide a context to pray, even when things are cheerful. Singing songs of praise encourages what Paul exhorts, a life of prayer without ceasing. 
Third, we are also to pray in times of sickness. In times of sickness. The Greek word James uses for sickness means weakness. It's, it's very broad in its meaning throughout the New Testament, but, but I think a study of this context, of the verses around it, and of the other chapters in James, and of the way in which James draws his vocabulary and theology from Jesus' life points to the fact that what James is talking about here is specifically physical illness. And to the early church, and to you and I, James asked, is anyone among you sick? They should turn to prayer. Now, we get that, don't we? It is perhaps why the bulk of all prayer requests and prayer meetings and on prayer chains revolve around physical ailments. Sickness is a part of the sting of sin. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, that while we are still in this tent, this physical body, we groan. How many of you know that your tent groans a little more the older you get? Your back groans, every ache, every pain is a reminder that these physical bodies are in a constant state of decay. I finally reached that point in life where I feel like my body is starting to decay. Thus, you were with me when I needed these for the first time. Little things in the morning hurt me a little more than they used to. You know, it's strange, and it's only happened over the past few few, uh, months and maybe year, But, but they're a reminder to me that this tent is temporary, and that while I groan in it, I do so anticipating a day that has not yet come, Thanks be to God who reminds us that, that in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, one day this perishable body will put on the imperishable and this mortal body will put on immortality. And, and so we, but yet we find ourselves here still in this state of groaning, anticipating that wholeness while still very much affected by the physical suffering that is the result of sin. And in those times of groaning, in those times of pain and suffering, James says... The proper response is prayer. We could spend an entire series on this particular topic alone. We could wrestle with the fact that God chooses to heal some while not healing others. We could flesh out the reality that many times the healing our loved ones receive is not in this life but in the next. And we can marvel that still other times God does choose to miraculously touch an individual and bring supernatural healing. The truth is, however, ultimately, even if we spent weeks talking about this, we'd still be left in awe and wonder with no more explanation for why God heals some and doesn't heal others. We must rest in the sovereignty and trust in the goodness of God. And even if we face seemingly unanswered prayers for healing, still, yet, we must pray in times of sickness. That leads us to the next question James answers in the text, namely how How should we pray? First, I would suggest to you that you should pray by enlisting the prayers of the church. To those who are sick, James says, call for the elders of the church. Now, Calvary Hills is not an elder-led church. Maybe you've been a part of these churches, um, and there's some differing thought about how the church is to be structured. Instead, our polity is organized with a single elder, a pastor, with multiple deacons serving the congregation. There's evidence, though, that's convincing that the New Testament church, as early as the Church of Jerusalem, was an elder-led church, specifically a church led by multiple elders. 
Originally, the term elders literally meant men that were more mature in age who guided the church. And the Christian church adopted this practice from Judaism of having these elders lead. But as the church grew, so too did their understanding of elders. And the elders became godly men who were mature in their faith, not necessarily older men who guided and protected the church. And Paul offers criteria for choosing those elders in 1 Timothy and in Titus. These elders that James speaks of would have been shepherds. Today, many churches, to include countless Baptist churches, employ this model of the plurality of elders as a group of godly men who together pastor the congregation, a a model where no one man is superior to the others. Rather, together, they form the team of men who pastor and care for the church. And that's the group of men James speaks of, he has in mind when he tells the sick to call for the elders of the church. These are pastors of the congregation. When James admonishes the sick to call for the elders, I don't believe that he's doing so because the elders have some sort of special gifting and healing. Rather, I think he understood that many times when we are sick and when we are weak, we need others to intervene on our behalf. I can't help but to think of the paralytic in Luke chapter 5. Do you remember his story? He was, he was too weak to get up and go see Jesus on his own, and so instead his friends took him. When they got there, do you remember the story? There was no easy approach to Jesus, and so they carried him, mat and all, up to the roof, dug a hole in the roof, and let his mat down through to Jesus. The result, he was forgiven and he was healed. So too, says James, when you and I are weak and are in need, we ought to submit ourselves to the church, for through the prayers of the church is power available. This in no way diminishes the importance of your individual prayer, your personal prayer, but it affirms the value of agreement by the church. It's an affirmation of Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 18, 19, and 20, and John 5, or 15, verses 7 through 17, that agreement among Christians unleashes the power of prayer. When the elders pray, they are to pray over the sick anointing them with oil. The preposition for over here gives the picture of prayer that's directed toward the sick person or over the sick person. And we get the sense that this group of elders gathers around the sick person and they lay their hands upon him or her as they pray. And as they do, James continues that they are to anoint the sick with oil. The anointing of, with oil was not the primary act. Rather, it accompanied the prayer. And while the use of oil for healing was common in the ancient world, James is stressing oil not as the reason for the healing, but rather as a symbolic um, vehicle of divine power in the same way as it was used in Mark 16, 13, when the disciples cast out demons and anointed many who were sick with oil. Are you sick, James asked? Call for the elders. Call to the church. Have them pray over you and anoint you with oil. He goes on to make this prayer and our prayer even more specific. He says the elders should pray in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. If the practice of calling for elders was a form of submission to the church, then this is a form of submission to Christ. You see, prayer needs to be more than just a, a formula like, in Jesus' name, I pray. No, this is a state in which we pray. Just as a person being baptized is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just as exorcisms in Scripture were done in the name of Jesus Christ, so too prayers for healing must call upon the name that is above every other name. 
for it is God's power that heals the person. Healing can come from no other source but God and God alone. And lest anyone become confused and think that they are a healer, as far too many television preachers have done, James clearly reminds us that we must always pray in the name of the Lord. He is the source of all power, and to Him belongs the glory. So when we pray, we must pray in the name of the Lord. Third, we must pray in faith. Pray in faith. Look back at the text with me now in verse 15. And the prayer of faith, writes James, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. When, when we pray, we must trust in God for the outcome. That means that when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, it shouldn't weaken our prayers. It means we understand that God is sovereign, and he knows what is best for us. It means that we believe that his ways are higher than ours. And so when we ask for healing, even as I did 21 years ago for my son, and it doesn't come, praying in faith means trusting God with the outcome, no matter what. It means believing that he's not only powerful enough to deliver or heal, but he's good enough and he's sovereign enough to know what should happen in every circumstance. Prayers that are based in that kind of intense, ultimate faith are powerful, says James. In fact, such prayers can save the one who is sick, James continues. The Greek word for save here is that same word from which we get our word salvation. It means here in this context to save from death and by implication to heal. And it's critical that we understand that it's not our prayer that does the healing or our power that does the saving. Rather, to God belongs the power to heal, and he alone is the one who can raise up the sick. He alone is the one who can make the lame to walk again. James says, you and I should pray in faith, knowing that God is powerful enough to save the sick. God delights in such prayers, and such prayers bring healing. Now, in the interest of time, we can't get into a long conversation about why God answers some of these prayers of faith and not others, but my experience and your experience of some prayers not leading to physical healing should not deter us from the act of praying in faith, for God and God alone can, can and he does bring healing, and we must continue to pray in faith for those who are sick, for prayers in faith, they bring healing. The final answer to how we should pray is that we should pray united as repentant sinners. Look back at the text again, if you still have it there in front of you, at the second part of verse 15 and first part of 16. James says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Like the paralytic I mentioned earlier, whose friends brought him to Jesus, and the first thing Jesus did was to say that his sins were forgiven, James says when the church prays for each other, forgiveness is the result. Now, in James' day, there was a widespread belief that sickness was caused by sin. And on the one hand, the New Testament and Scripture make it clear that sin and death can, or sin can be, um, or lead to uh, physical suffering. We find this in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 27 and 30. But on the other hand, Jesus says suffering is not always the result of sin, as he says in John chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. Sometimes... Your physical suffering, your physical illness, and your guilt are interwoven. 
But sometimes that's not the case. And we ought to be praying then, because it is sometimes the case, for forgiveness from sin. But the emphasis here moves in verse 16 from praying for others, such as the sick, to a practice that we should all adhere to, that of confession. Confess your sins one to another. Now, confession in the biblical thought is a foreign concept to you and I because confession has a public quality to it. We, on the other hand, are private people, are we not? We keep our secrets. What happens in our homes stays in our homes. Confession in the New Testament, though, was not that way. Confession was a part of the early church, and it usually took place in public ways. So while individual and private confession is good and important, James says to the church, you need to get serious about bringing into the light the things that are done in darkness. Such confession purifies the community. We need to do a better job at confessing our sin to each other. I'm not suggesting that we, we take time every Sunday morning and everybody get up and share their sins from that week. But I think we do need to have more conversations about what that means in the church and how we're real with each other, how we can find this, this purity from unrighteousness. You still with me, church? We could literally have divided this passage, by the way, into three different sermons, and I discovered that as I started uh, studying this week. But given the fact that this is my last Sunday with you, I wanted to get through this text, so I hope you'll forgive me. Hold on to your seats for just a few more moments. Let's look at the last question James is going to answer, namely, why should we pray? Why should we pray? There are three reasons James gives, and we're going to move through them rather quickly. First, we must pray because prayer brings healing and forgiveness. We've already alluded to this, but James continues in verse 16, after telling the church to confess their sins one to another and pray one for another, he says, if they do, they will be healed. Prayer can affect physical healing, but it can also affect spiritual healing. 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why should we be praying in all circumstances? Because we're sinners. Because we're still being remade into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because we're still in these bodies and still living in a world that is littered with sin. And as such, we are likely to succumb to sin on a regular basis. And so we need to be praying in times of trouble, in times of happiness, and in times of sickness. Because prayer brings he healing and forgiveness. It revolutionizes our spiritual lives and our physical lives. And here's the second reason James point to, points to. The prayer of genuine faith is the prayer that is effective. The prayer of genuine faith is the prayer that is effective. James continues in the second part of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Another translation reads, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person availeth much. Let me unpack that phrase for you for a moment because I think it's powerful in its original language. In the Greek, it's a compact five-word sentence, essentially meaning that God dynamically answers prayers. It begins with the word for much, as James wants his readers to see first and foremost how very much can be accomplished by prayer. It's followed by a verb which means to be strong, to have strength, ability, or powerful. 
And then it, James uses a word for prayer that isn't, that isn't um, general, but rather specific, denoting the sort of prayer his readers would be doing because of their trials and persecutions. Following that, he designates the person praying as righteous, not of their own accord, but rather because they have already confessed their sins. And remember that all along in this book, James has been urging us to reach for righteousness, for authentic faith, to not compromise in our trials. And it's the prayers of the righteous then that are able to accomplish much. And finally, James uses a verb that means at work, effective or operative. These prayers that are able to accomplish much, when rendered by a righteous person, work, they're effective, they're operative. Put it all together, it reads something like this, much power does the specific prayer of a righteous person affect. In other words, in your trials, you don't need to overcome through power, through money, through favoritism, through selfishness, or swearing of oaths, all these things James has talked to us about throughout this text, throughout this book. Instead, use the power of prayer. Commit yourself to doing what is right without compromise, and when you do, your prayers will be powerful. God will meet your needs. You can rely on him for when you ask out of a life of righteousness, your request will have great strength to affect your situation and the situations of those around you for the glory of God. Do you want your prayers to be effective? Then live a life of righteousness. For when a righteous person prays, much can happen. That brings us to the third and the final reason James says we ought to pray. And it's this, the power of prayer is for us. The power of prayer is for us. Preacher, you say you're sounding a little too much like a TV preacher now, but bear with me because it's right there, clearly, plainly laid out in this text. In fact, I would suggest that it is the primary focus of verses 17 and 18. Listen to them again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Continue to verse 18, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James uses this Old Testament figure known for his miracle-producing prayers to illustrate a point. You and I tend to elevate biblical figures as heroes and heroines of our faith. We hear the stories of Abraham, Moses, David, Daniel, Esther, Peter, and Paul, and we hold them in such high regard that we forget that they were humans just like us. Friends, if you ever attend a church that makes the protagonist of the story of Scripture a human being, I implore you to challenge that teacher or preacher, the protagonist of every Scripture passage is never the human character involved. The hero is never the man or woman written about. It is always, without exception, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The human beings involved in this book were human beings just like us. James draws our attention to that truth with the phrase, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't perfect, 
but he continued to reach for righteousness. And so, as you and I live in obedience to strive for the goal of righteousness, we ought to pray just like Elijah did. For as Elijah's prayers were answered in extraordinary ways, ways that were undeniably beyond his human power, so too can our prayers be heard and answered. If the power of prayer was reserved for those who have already arrived, those who have already been made perfect, then the only prayers that ever would have been effective are those of Jesus Christ himself. But as it is, we see from examples of everyday men like Elijah that the power of prayer is for us. As we prepare to close this morning, I want to share a quote, a quote by Charles Spurgeon. I told you when I first started preaching here that I would give you a lot of Spurgeon. You've heard me mention him several times. I tried to lay off a little, but I got to end with a powerful quote by Spurgeon. Here's what he said. Prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. Friends, I wonder this morning, how hard are you pulling on that rope? Are you wringing it in times of trouble, in times of happiness, and in times of sickness? Are you enlisting the prayers of your brothers and sisters here at this church? Are you praying in the name of the Lord? Are you praying in faith? Are you praying as united, repentant sinners? And are you praying, believing that the prayer of genuine faith brings healing and is effective? And finally, do you really believe that the power of prayer is for you? Join me. And let's boldly approach the throne of grace together in prayer.